There's so much uh, to congratulate First Universalist uh, Church for this morning, your 150th anniversary, and of course, congratulations to your search and seizure committee for bringing you a new ministerial candidate uh, beginning next week. Justin Schroeder is a Meadville Lombard uh, alum. Uh, It was my privilege to have presented him a diploma a few years ago. They have done an outstanding job by you. I am extremely excited about your future with Justin. It is uh, an act of uh, synchronicity, I suppose, that um, that links together this 150th celebration and the calling of a new minister, because there is no event in the life of a congregation that has a greater impact on its future than the calling of a new minister. And that means that today, standing on the brink of candidating week, that means that today is a particularly good day to speak about that relationship between ministers and congregations. Today I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it looks like on the other side of the relationship, the minister's side of the relationship. Today I'm going to tell you much about what I tell our ministerial students at Meadville Lombard. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the orientation that I know Justin is going to be coming here with um, on Thursday and continuing on for the next many days. But I do so talk very directly about this relationship between congregation and minister, hoping, thinking, being pretty sure that the application is larger than simply that relationship, that the application really is about the you that we each bring in to the world. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, let me say out loud, I am a minister. I, uh, I say that proudly. Um, I don't often say it on an airplane or, or where I'm going to be in an enclosed space with an unknown person for a long period of time, but I, I say it very proudly uh, this morning, and, and I am especially proud when I am able to say what a spiritually resilient group of people we are. Our life's work is to build something that is not likely to be achieved in our lifetime. We're people whose inner pain will not be softened until the pain of those we served is softened. And I don't see that that job has an obvious end point. We are servants who cannot know inner peace until all of humanity lives in harmony. And that day appears to be on a far horizon. It's good we are a spiritually resilient lot. We need to be. There wouldn't be a night's sleep without it. Things have changed in ministry and in congregations since this congregation ordained me in 1978. The trend back then was to think of ministers primarily as healers, as people who could help put back together broken spirits and split-apart communities. And although it's not that healing is no longer a concern for religious and spiritual people, it is to be sure. These days, however, the people we serve primarily expect us to be transformative leaders. 
We are expected to be, for instance, pastors who can uh, envision, excuse me, we, expect to, uh, we are expected to be pastors who can plant the seed for growing spiritual lives. We're expected to be institutionalists who can envision and create a new future for the churches we serve. We're expected to be society's leaders who can usher in that new world of justice and harmony. People yearn for transformation. Transformation, by its very definition, does not specify an exact end. Transformation is a process that is undertaken not knowing where it's going to lead, but maintaining the faith that a person or the church or the world will be altered to the better by the changes that are forged in our value system. The ideal of transformation makes for amazing possibilities for ministry, but it also carries with it inevitable tensions. Earth Day, celebrating Earth Day this morning. Think about how much humanity knows about how to be in harmony with the planet. Think about how much we know about how much damage and destruction our human footprint does to the, to the big blue ball. Think about that we know that extinction is the real possibility for every living thing, including ourselves. We know all of this. And reason, if it were about reason, would have us think that such a vivid understanding would prompt us to change our ways immediately and drastically. But you know, we're still fighting battles. We're still fighting the political battles that must be fought in order to in order to reduce that footprint. And we're still fighting those personal battles. Even those of us who think we really get it have trouble changing our habitual behaviors. But as one uh, nameless politician uh, once said, a nameless politician who used to live down the street from me until he moved to Washington, D.C., as he once said, whenever the voices of change are heard, the forces of the status quo will resist. It's just a fact. People have a hard time changing, even if they want it, even if they insist on it. People don't change easily. That's just the way it is. And to be surprised by it, I say to our new ministers, or to be disappointed by it, I say to our new ministers, well, come on. That's just the way it is. It's built into the fabric of transformation. We human beings are more comfortable with slow-paced evolution than we are with the jump of revolution. And that's one of the reasons that people occasionally take those out-of-the-blue pot shots at their ministers. It's it's one of the reasons. It's, it's not all the reasons. Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes we goof up and fall short, and we deserve it. But sometimes it's not our fault. My favorite experience was the woman who, after I'd been serving a church for about six months, told me she was going to quit the church if um, she saw me at one more church function wearing a necktie. And now... I kind of assumed that the issue wasn't the issue and invited her to uh, make an appointment to come in. I remember I wore a necktie that day. 
I'm a born universalist. I don't like being told what to do or what to wear. And it came clear, obviously, the tie wasn't the issue. The tie was simply a symbol that she felt she was losing the church she had known. And under my ministry, it was true. We were moving the church toward a bit more formality, both in worship and in governance. It had to happen. It was California, after all, and we had to... It had to change. But it was hard, really hard. But it's just one of the dynamics of life. And it's one of the dynamics of ministry. To get upset by it, I tell our students, or surprised by it, well, come on, it's just the way it is. Norman Fletcher was one of my predecessors in a church I served in New Jersey. Norman maintained a 40-year ministry to that congregation before he retired in the early 1970s, and I invited him to participate in my installation service where he said, and I remember to this day, he said, if you're going to be a minister, you have to have a thick skin. And at first I thought Norman meant that if you're going to be a minister in New Jersey, you had to have a thick skin, and although that was really true, no, he meant... It had to be, if you were going to be a minister anywhere, you had to have a thick skin. He said it really often. And, and I came to see that um, the reason he said it really often is because he didn't have a thick skin. Norman felt acutely every slight and judgment that came his way. He had to have felt those because he was a really good minister. And really good ministers can't have a thick skin. Good ministry demands vulnerability. And I suspect that what Norman really meant was that in order to be a good minister, you have to have not so much a thick skin, but a large perspective, a big picture. So that the things that should bounce off do bounce off, and so that the things that should penetrate do penetrate. One of the ways that I've been thinking about um, how to maintain this big picture is by drawing on uh, the example of Jungian analysis of dreams. Now, this might seem like a stretch at first, but I think that if you stay with me and work with me a little bit here, we we might be able to get it. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, said that the unconscious reveals itself to us in Our dreams, and dreams contain symbols which, when interpreted properly, offer a window to our unconscious hopes and fears and desires. Everything in a dream, every object, every person, is a symbol for one element of ourselves, the the dreamer. A a hypothetical example. Let's say that last night I dreamt that I showed up in church this morning and, and delivered my sermon fully nude. Don't Picture that, please. (laughs) And let's say you laughed at me. It wasn't a dream. It wouldn't have been a dream about you. It would have been a dream about me. And that is that your laughter would have represented that part of me that judges myself and is supercritical of myself. It's not about you. It's about me working out something about myself. So liken 
to a dream, this relationship between transformative leader and those who look to us for transformation comes awfully close. For one, it's a relationship that contains these enormous hopes and desires and fears, many of them unconscious. For another, there are symbols contained within it, highly charged symbols like robes and hoods and stoles and, and gosh, the minister himself or herself. So often when we ministers are criticized or slighted or challenged or threatened, it's not about us. It's about that layperson just trying to work something out, not with us, although it sometimes feels like it, that's for sure. They're trying to work out something with themselves. And if we think about it as being about us, and goodness, it's awfully easy to do because it feels awfully personal sometimes. But if we think it's about us and try to answer it or justify it or alter ourselves in the way that the other wants us to be, if we think it's about us, it will become about us. And before you know it, transformation is halted and conflict takes its place. When we make it about us, we lose sight of what we are called to do, which is to be transformative leaders. Transformation is what it's all about. Deepening another's spirit. Reinvigorating a religious community. Changing the world to a vision of justice and equity and compassion. A final story for you. A real-life story that does two really good things. One, it offers a perfect metaphor for the day. And two, it tells you why I called this sermon The Way of the Sherpa. This story took place in May 2007. David Tate, a Brit, uh, who had once before climbed uh, successfully Mount Everest, decided um, that he was going to do what no one had ever accomplished before. He was going to do a double traverse of Everest. In a nutshell, he said, I'll climb the summit from the north and descend to base camp on the south. Then, weather permitting and health permitting, I'll simply retrace my steps all the way back, summiting yet again en route. There's a reason that no one's ever done this before. (laughs) It's virtually impossible. And in 2007, the odds were against him uh, and, and the single Sherpa who accompanied him while they began their ascent from the north. Now, there is no such thing as an easy ascent of Everest, but they made it in fairly good time, and their main problem came on the descent on the south side of the mountain. Terrible weather, incredible amounts of snow on that side, meant that no one had yet climbed on the south side in the Uh, in that uh, climbing season. So no ropes had yet been installed, no ladders. There weren't any trails uh, that could be followed. And there was no radio communication. Um, If the two of them fell or got hurt or succumbed to oxygen deprivation, they were in the death zone. And the death zone means that you, you die there. They were on their own. 
So they left the summit and went down into the void, and there are pictures of them doing this by other climbers who had been on the summit when they made their descent. And there, you, you can see in the background other climbers as they begin their descent who look at them and kind of shake their heads, and you can tell what's in their minds like, these guys are really taking their lives into their own hands, which is really what happened. Hours went by with no word from them. Hours went by with no sight of them. And then finally, finally, many, many hours into their journey, there were some radio squeaks in a base camp far, far away, which meant they, they had made it into the camp. They had, had now just a day or two to regroup, catch their breath, and then begin the ascent from the south for the completion of the double traverse. Speaking of the descent on the south side, David Tate said it was horrible and he would have died many times over without the assistance of his Sherpa. It was the Sherpa who encouraged him. It was the Sherpa who found the proper route through the drifts of snow. It was the Sherpa who installed the necessary ropes. It was the Sherpa who hammered in the pegs and the clamps. It was the Sherpa who would have given up his own life to help David Tate realize this dream. It was the Sherpa's climb and descent. David Tate was simply accompanying him. He wasn't, David Tate wasn't the strongest climber on the trip. And that was the reason, without any warning, that he just gave up. And he said that, uh, uh, that he wasn't going to try that double traverse. Because he realized that if they did indeed, uh, if they did indeed accomplish that goal that really it would have been the Sherpa who had accomplished the goal, not him. And he knew what would have happened is that the Sherpa would have pulled him up, pulled him down, and just as they were about to, receive, to, uh, to cross over the finish line, the Sherpa would have taken a step back and pushed David Tate over the line so that he could say, I was the first person ever to accomplish the double traverse. David Tate wouldn't have felt right about that, he said, but it couldn't have been any other way. That's what the Sherpa was paid to do, he said, and the double traverse and my accomplishment of it would have been a sham. There's kind of a nobility to David Tate's statement, to his assessment of the situation. It does show a sensitivity to all the dynamics that were in play. And yet, it really doesn't show a full understanding of who that Sherpa is. The Sherpa has taken up the role of getting others to the top of Everest, not for his own glory, but because that's what he does. That's what he is called to do. That's the way of the Sherpa. And that's the way of the minister, too. When we're at our best, we ministers really get the Sherpa, as few others are able, perhaps. Our vocation is to serve others without regard to our own glory or honor. Our vocation is to be transformative leaders who who can achieve that only by being immune to the, the conflicts and the weirdness that transformation inevitably 
and genders. We do that by being satisfied only when true transformation occurs. What a happy coincidence that as you celebrate your 150th anniversary and look forward to the future of your church, that you also embark on candidating week and stake for yourself a new relationship and a new future for First Universalist Church in Minneapolis. What an instance of synchronicity. For here you have the most graphic way of placing a hazelnut in your hand, knowing that it will grow, not knowing what the shape of that growth will look like, not knowing exactly how far the branches will spread and how tall it will reach to the sky, but knowing that with your nurture, it will grow into something more spectacular than that which you have now. And that there will be weirdness along the way and goofiness along the way is just part of the way that the hazelnut turns into its tree. What a happy synchronicity. Amen.